From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today Matthew Worsner returns to the show for another history lesson. I, I will bet money that if a critical race theory case goes up to the Supreme Court, even with the ideological makeup of the Supreme Court today, they will find the exact same thing, that a ban on critical race theory either violates the Fourth Amendment, Fourteenth Amendment liberty right or violates equal protection because there's no non-racial basis for the law. We talk about William Jennings Bryan, the Scopes trial, and the implications of school censorship from the past to the future. Stay tuned for that conversation after this break. Riverside Chats is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep this podcast going strong, bringing you the unique perspectives, personalities, and topics you love. Click the listener support link in the podcast notes for this episode to learn more. Hello? Want to be a munchie boy? Listen to Omaha's new goofy food podcast, The Munchie Boys. Every week, we get food from a different local restaurant. Let's go. We munch. Yes, there is munch. And talk about the experience. What we got. Where did we go? We're still there. Two boxes of food. In lighthearted banter. I just jammed the rest of the Mediterranean in my mouth. Meatball-based items. In a way that is both zany. This is going to be crazy. We might end up throwing up. And fun. My hands are burning. Hell yeah. Every episode features an exclusive song. Where we sing about our weekly adventures and feature a different analog synthesizer. It's a synth model. Play the track now. Now, yeah, yeah, yeah. sounds like haha. Check out Munchie Boys on Spotify, YouTube, streaming or streaming, and most other digital outlets. That's what happens. Munchie, Munchie, Munchie Boys. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Matthew Worsner, our resident historian, about the history of legal challenges to school curriculum and its implications for the future of education. Here is our conversation. You're here to talk about challenges to curriculum, that uh, the legal challenges to school curriculum, essentially, mm-hmm. of what should be taught in schools, what shouldn't. And the people who decide that, the people who get mad about it. So critical race theory is the big boogeyman right now. Uh, it's very highly publicized. I think 22 states have introduced bills in the last several months to try to restrict it in various ways. Uh, Charles Herbster, Jim Pillen have both indicated intentions to censor school curriculums about critical race theory. Right. So what is it exactly is a big question everyone's asking. And I think, you know, maybe nobody's better qualified to define it than the people who are leading the charge, right? I look to our governmental leadership to tell me what I need to learn in schools, and so I'm hopeful that you have a definition from the government. Yeah. Like if I, if if in the Trojan War, uh, people said I've never heard of Troy. What is it? You know, I would hope that the people leading the fight know what Troy is, right? Uh, gosh, I hope so. So anyway, okay. So in the World Herald, uh, this is a quote from Governor Ricketts, and I think it, it. We'll see how much it helps clarify everything for everybody. All right. So, quote. So the critical race theory, and I can't think of the author right off the top of my head who wrote about this, had a, had a theory that at the high level is, is one that really starts creating those divisions between us about defining who we are on race and that sort of thing, and not really about how to bring us together as Americans rather than and dividing us and also having a lot of very socialist type ideas about how that would be implemented in our state, end quote. 
What? So you get it? What does that right? mean? You know the boogeyman now? I, I don't know what. We're banning that, all right? <laughs> None of that. Okay. I'm on board. <laughs> I think, well, so, so why I start with that is because my, uh, my sense is not a lot of people really know what it is, which maybe is a helpful detail in the war yeah. on it. I, th- I think the joke I told last week when we were brainstorming this segment was that I had done research on critical race theory on the internet and my internet misinformation meter melted down because it overheated. <laughs> right. And so uh, this is a boogeyman that people think is indoctrinating kids. But I find it interesting that the type of indoctrination is, I guess, socialism. And it's not really clear exactly what the overlap is between the concepts. You and I went to school here. Yep. Uh, I don't know that Outside of this year, I ever really was exposed to the concept, and I've looked it up only because it's in the news. You know, and the thing is, I remember being a kid, and 12-year-old me, even if it was taught, I couldn't have cared less. Yeah, that's well, that, that's another thing, actually. I have a quote. That I, I brought this up to uh, historian Adam Fletcher Sassy, who was not a fan of it, but I, I think there's maybe something to it, but uh, there's... Uh, it's a think tank wonk who uh, he was talking about this. His name is Matt Brunig, and he brought up some points about this, which is kind of like, why should we care so much? Are we caring a little bit too much about what happens in high school history? And he, he brought up four points. So one, he says, one, a lot of kids are fairly checked out at school and aren't likely to absorb much of anything. True. Two, others are, verily, are, are very checked in at school, but only as grade seekers who ace tests but also don't absorb much of anything. Uh, that's me. <laughs> Three, Genuinely interested people can read about whatever history they want to read about online. Yep. And four, in practice, individual teachers are going to have a lot of discretion over what they decide to say or not say in class, regardless of any curricular mandates. Totally correct. All right. So those are, those are the things I want to do to kind of frame and we'll kind of bounce off of this. But essentially, uh, challenges to school curriculum are not – that's not a new battle, in other words. Right. And the, you know, the people at the forefront of these challenges, the ACLU, by and large, have been leading challenges since day one of the ACLU. And I was able to find seven states where they've filed lawsuits challenging bans already. Um, I'll take you through kind of the history of what the ACLU has done. Uh, But it'll be interesting to see with as upset as people are about this right now, there's a lot of equally nonsensical things that people were upset about in the past as well. And I'm very excited to find out what the future thing people are going to be upset about is. Now, the one that most people probably have at least heard of, just because it's an interesting name, like I remember as a kid, you hear about the Scopes monkey trial. Right. And the word monkey in there immediately, you're like, well, I don't hear about monkeys a whole lot in American (laughs) history. So (laughs) that sounds like a fun one. I don't think it was taught in a fun way, but it is kind of a fun mess. I remember it in school as a footnote and not a thing that we spent a lot of time on. And we were too busy learning critical race theory to get to Scopes monkey trial. Yeah. Everything that (laughs) I'm told I'm supposed to be afraid of is the only thing I remember learning. (laughs) I when I took a deep dive into the Scopes trial, it, it's about as much of a circus as you could possibly hope for. I but, mean, circus is a good word too when we're talking about monkeys. <laughs> it was not intentional, um, but that that's the it's the big one, but it's not the beginning. Okay. So, a, as you know, a student of history, ooh, I hate saying that, but as a person who cares about history. We kind of have to frame this as with everything else in American legal history, uh, starting at the Civil War. So 
back in ye olden times, the the Constitution was just the Bill of Rights, and the Bill of Rights said the federal government can and can't do X, Y, and Z. And then the Civil War happens, and out of the Civil War are the Reconstruction Amendments, 13, 14, 15, banning slavery, uh, due process, equal protection, and the right to vote. The thing that is interesting and exciting about the 14th Amendment is it's the most transformational uh, portion of the Constitution for our society as a whole. And the reason being is a particular clause in the beginning of it that says no state shall. And prior to the Civil War and the Reconstruction Amendments, the Constitution didn't apply to the states. It only applied against the federal government. So if I've got a bunch of drugs in my car and the state of Nebraska, which didn't exist yet, comes... In your, in your carriage or something? Yeah. Your horseless carriage. Yep. They yeah. pull over my horse carriage. my horse-drawn carriage yeah. and they take all of my old-timey drugs out of the car and don't laudanum. have... Laudanum. They take my laudanum and they don't have probable cause for it. There's nothing I could do about it. Um, what the 14th Amendment does is it says no state shall deprive a person of life, liberty, or property without due process and um, says in there that all citizens have equal protection under the law. What Supreme Court cases throughout time started to do, and I am guessing the 1860s uh, Senate didn't think about this, but what the Supreme Court did was say due process of law means um, no unreasonable searches and seizures, and you're allowed to have your guns, and you're allowed to have your religion, and was able to take those provisions of the early amendments in the Bill of Rights and apply those against the states. That doesn't matter for what we're talking about necessarily, but what does specifically matter is in the 14th Amendment, it says you can't deprive a person of liberty without due process. Okay. What it does not say is students have the right to go to school, parents have the right to teach, the government has the right to teach, none of that. So the right to an education technically does not expressly exist in the Constitution. And it's fancy Supreme Court writing that gets us to these cases saying students have the right to learn, parents have the right to, to direct teaching, so on and so forth. But so the first case that I could find um, that was of any interest was in 1886, State XREL Andrew V. Weber. And like any good parent in that particular case, um, a dad said, well, I don't want my kid learning music. And the school curriculum said the kid has to learn music. And so the dad goes to the superintendent. And mind you, this is the 1800s, so everybody's wearing a top hat yeah. and they're wearing a three-piece suit. And he says, I don't want my kid learning Mozart, this is nasty. And the superintendent says, well, this is the curriculum. Okay, I'm going to stop you for a second. You Maybe you don't have the answer here, but was there something about the music in particular that was offensive? Oh, I tried to find that. I, I really looked into that, and I couldn't find it. And I really wanted somebody to be like, well, you know, this classical music, this is coming straight from the devil. I don't want my kid to learn <laughs> I this. I, I was thinking it's like, you know, Dixieland, and it's, it's charged because it's the late, late 1800s. Somebody's um, upset about the newly invented saxophone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't. Okay, so but for, for whatever reason, they just thought maybe it could just boil down to I'd rather they learn, you know, more. Math yeah, eighteen hundreds yeah. stuff. Right. And so the dad tells the kid, "Don't go to music class." So the kid gets suspended, 
and the dad files a lawsuit and loses immediately. And the, the court says, parents don't have the right to dictate what the kids learn. The schools have the right to dictate what the kids learn. Um, nothing interesting happens then for another 60 years about. No, that's about another 40 years. Um, the first really interesting case that I, I remember even learning about in school was Meyer versus Nebraska. And at the time, the First World War had just ended. And I don't want to shock you, but Nebraskans were pretty heavily anti-immigrant. And the um, state passed a law that said you can't teach foreign languages in schools. And it's, it specifically said you can teach after the eighth grade, but you can't teach anybody younger than um, eighth grade in any language other than English. So the idea was we don't want multilingual children. Absolutely not. And, and this is going to get it's going to get interesting really quickly. Don't you worry. But so, you know, imagine back in the 1920s, it's a one room schoolhouse and a little little pipsqueak kid is reading his book in German. And the county attorney of Hamilton County, which is just east of Grand Island, strolls in. And I'm assuming it's a very large man and like a white suit. I love these suspenders. pictures you paint of all these these people. Okay, I, You know, the, the country lawyer that you expect to see <laughs> strolls in and can't believe his eyes when he sees this child reading a book in German. So he immediately files charges against the teacher saying you violated this law that says that you're not allowed to teach um, other languages. And the Nebraska Supreme Court um, on appeal says, oh, yeah, that's good law. So there's a particular quote in here that, that I really liked. The Nebraska Supreme Court majority said that the law was appropriate, an appropriate response to the baneful effects of allowing immigrants to educate their children in their own language because allowing such teaching is dangerous to our safety. And that's rooted in some kind of nationalism, I assume, right? It's got to be. But that, I mean, that's the top jurist in Nebraska saying immigrants are scary. Yeah. So naturally this gets appealed to the- You think like what, third generation American? (laughs) Probably. If it's it's 1925, they can't have been there long- (laughs) Long after the Statue of Liberty was put up. <laughs> okay, yeah, just, just for clarity. So the, this case goes to the Supreme Court, of course, and the Supreme Court says that liberty right that's mentioned in the 14th Amendment includes the right to learn. And it specifically says that schools have the right to teach a certain way and parents have the right to teach a certain way. And I know you're thinking, great, the big Supreme Court here to the rescue setting us on a good path and showing us what good judges are supposed to do, but you're wrong. So the opinion of the majority of the Supreme Court, um, Chief Judge Taft's court says, the protection of the Constitution, and this is a direct quote here, the protection of the Constitution extends to all, to those who speak languages as, to speak other languages, as well as to those born with English on the tongue. Perhaps it would be highly advantageous if all had ready understanding of our ordinary speech, but this cannot be coerced by methods which conflict with the Constitution. A desirable end cannot be promoted by prohibited means. So the Supreme Court is telling us 
gosh, we, we really wish everybody would speak English. And there's probably a way that you guys in the legislatures can make that happen, but this isn't the way to do it. That's the way I read that. Um, I don't feel great about that, but you know, the, the law is ever changing, I suppose. So maybe you don't know this, I don't know, but uh, away from the legal challenges, the way school curriculum is often established is through school boards who mm-hmm. often are elected. And so usually they are connected to a community sure. and kind of represent what each locality is interested in teaching the kids. Even though, I mean, there's going to be plenty of overlap of just skills that will broadly apply mm-hmm. to most adults, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, was that still the case at this point? So it was just a lot of localities that were sort of deciding, here's what school should look like? Um, I don't know the answer to that. But the, the thing that's interesting about that, each one of these cases that um, that I'm pointing out are state legislatures saying, we know what's best for teaching the kids. And yeah, they're elected officials, but somebody in the panhandle in Nebraska thinks a lot differently for the most part than somebody in Omaha. And so to to your point, if a local school board is determining the curriculum for the local area, that seems to make sense. And all of these cases involve the whole state trying to say, no, we don't want to teach what you know this one locality is, is trying to teach. Um, but... Per usual, you've asked me a question I can't answer. Good. Thank you. All right. It just took me Thank 15 you. minutes, but we got there. <laughs> if you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Matthew Worsner about the history of legal challenges to school curriculum. Join the conversation on social media using hashtag Riverside Chats. All right. So, I mean, another thing you're here to talk about and we're leading into is William Jennings Bryan, right? What Does he enter soon here? Not yet. Okay. Not, in, just, this, not in this we'll particular case. This, this next case, though, is... Um, incredibly important to uh, lawyers everywhere. It's one of the most cited cases in all of lawdom, but uh, even more so than Roe v. Wade. Brown versus Board of Education? It's it's not, you know, actually a case about education. I didn't get to Brown versus Board of Education. (laughs) Um, Pierce versus Society of Sisters. And that's 1925, so it's the same um, Taft court, same deal. It's post- World War I case, and it required, it was a law that required all children go to public school. And prior to that, the law had said um, everybody has to go to to public school with certain exceptions. Um, Kids who have already graduated eighth grade, uh, the mentally unwell, and those who are going to private schools. So, I mean, that's it was just more complicated before you had big industrial hubs, I imagine, right? Because if you lived on a farm, for example, it was going to be kind of difficult to get to a school. And that was one of the exceptions as well was children who live very far from a schoolhouse don't have to go to school. And as far as what types of students they could uh, they could help in any way, I imagine the resources were limited in a lot of cases. Right. But so it, the people that brought this new law, this amendment to this law, they don't care about that. What they care about is keeping the Catholics out of the schools. Ah, okay. So the KKK, among others, help put forward a law that says you can no longer go to private school. And it's with the sole purpose of keeping kids from going to Catholic school. The, the, the anti-Catholic sentiment is largely an anti-Irish immigrant or just various European Catholic immigrant uh, mentality. Sounds correct. Okay. That's, yeah, that sounds right to me. Um, so that case is important. The, the lawyers say a bunch of stuff and the court says a bunch of stuff about education. But what I wanted to pull out of that was a really neat 
neat quote buried within there. And that is, um, it's not a quote, the, the court in the big, big ass Supreme Court reasons that one of the defenses raised by the school, that they have a contract right with the parents who have enrolled their children, um, that contract right is being deprived by this law, the, the schools say. The Supreme Court says, no, schools are corporations and corporations are not people. Oh, boy. And only people have liberty rights. That, that one got dated. <laughs> it, I, and I, I wanted to go look into to see if Citizens United mentioned this particular case, which I suspect somewhere it does. But in, in the course of 90 years, I, I guess our thinking changed because now corporations are living, breathing people who can send their children to school all day. <laughs> There's been a big, a big, a lot of progress in our thinking on how to treat corporations. Immigrants, not so much. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, but so that, that case, those two cases are pretty important, pretty transformative for school rights. There's other cases about whether or not, you know, Amish people have to go to school and that, you know, is relevant if we were talking about vaccines because it's all about religious beliefs. But the the real thing that we're here to talk about is the the Scopes trial. Yeah, yeah, the monkeys. The I'm monkey ready, trial. I'm ready. So in in Tennessee, <laughs> it's 1925, and the state of Tennessee passes a law which says you can't teach evolution in schools. Um, evolution's been around at that point for like a hundred years? Yeah, so I was just thinking. So Darwin was writing mid-1800s, th- basically throughout the entire century, right, of the 1800s. He was, yeah. And then he wasn't the only one, but he inspired a lot of people, and it became kind of accepted. And, and maybe Tennessee just, like, didn't know. I mean, maybe Twitter wasn't working for them, <laughs> so they hadn't heard about it. But so it's a law called the Butler Act, and Mr. Butler, who wrote the law, says, I don't know anything about evolution. Um, but he says, I know it's bad. I know I don't like it. Um, I don't want it in our school. You see any parallels there? I, I'm really glad that you brought up what you brought up at the start of the show. <laughs> so um, enter William Jennings Bryan, who writes a letter to Mr. Butler and says, thank you for getting rid of the evil poison of evolution from our schools. But so uh, by this point, William Jennings Bryan is kind of like this populist hero, right? He has had a magnificently interesting career to this point. And he's older. His health is not great. He's in the twilight of his career. But his best days are are still in front of him. But there's a lot that's happened in his life before then. I think we should give a sense because that is our Nebraska connection as well. Right. So... As Nebraskans, uh, we sort of get the short end of the stick sometimes when it comes to famous people. Um, A lot of famous people were born in Nebraska and left or didn't even uh, grow up in Nebraska. Um, William William Jennings Bryan is is no exception. He's born and raised in Illinois. And like any person um, in the suburbs of Chicago, he says, there's nothing for me in Illinois, so I'm going to move to Nebraska. He gets to Nebraska and has a spectacularly successful political career. Um, but there's, there's something you need to know about William Jennings Bryan. He cared about two things in the world and two things only. That's religion, that's Protestantism, and the gold standard. There's nothing else in the world this man cared about more than the gold standard. 
So he's this political guy, and he's um, campaigning for the Democratic Party on this belief that bimetallism is the wave of the future. And Bi- that, meaning like multiple metals? That the gold standard should no longer be the thing. It should be um, gold and silver backing our currency. And this was a thing a lot of people cared about back then for some reason. And I, I looked into it and I could not believe how important this was to people back then. But so – so, so he ran for president three times. Is that right? He did, um, and we'll get to those elections. Oh, we're talking. Oh, oh, yeah, okay. I, I, I got. Ahead of you. I got. I, a, just... I got a lot right. about this guy. Don't all you right, worry. Right. So we're in the late 1890s, and William Jennings Bryan. He's this spectacular speaker, and it's 1896, and he's at the Democratic National Convention, and he, I don't think that he's there because he wants to get nominated. I think he's there because he's a figurehead in the party and they're trying to get somebody else nominated. But so he gives a 35-minute long speech about the gold standard. And apparently this is the greatest speech of all time <laughs> because multiple times the crowd was uproarious and was interrupting him because they were so excited about this. And he, he finally rounds out this speech by saying, you shall not crucify a man upon a cross of gold and sits down and the crowd goes nuts. And literally like the end of Rudy, they carry him out of there on their shoulders. <laughs> so this is – and this this happens a lot in William Jennings Bryan's well, life. What was it about his present like, – because it must be he's, in he's, the delivery, right? He's a spectacular public speaker yeah. and he um, he's known as the great commoner because he does a fantastic job of portraying the salt of the earth earth types and, and reaching regular folks. And he does a good job of, of engaging with his audiences. But this guy, all he knows how to do is lose. So it's, it's July of 1896. He gives this speech about how important silver is because, you know, we can't depend on gold for everything. And less than a month later, the 1896 Klondike gold rush happens and we discover a whole bunch of gold and everybody's like, what? Bimetallism is so stupid. Why did you run on this platform? But so he gives this great speech. He gets nominated um, to run against William McKinley and loses uh, because that's what this guy does. That was in the general election. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So he runs. He loses. Um, he runs again against McKinley and loses. He then runs against Taft and loses. I, that's all this man knows how to do, but but I mean he, that's success. That's a lot of success to get on the ticket three times. I, he lost to a guy who's only famous for being assassinated. I I, I don't know that that's a lot of success. <laughs> you think of w- William McKinley. What else do you think of besides the hospital I was born in? I you know I don't think of William McKinley, frankly. But exactly. I'll say this much: if anybody ever carried me off the <laughs> you know off the stage after a speech, I'd, I'd consider myself a success. I I guess so. But the, the thing that's interesting about William Jennings Bryan during these um, election cycles is he's averaging 63,000 spoken words in speeches per day. That's, that's insane. A wow. lot of that's words. It's like reading an entire book every single day. Now, 
you know as well as anybody that I don't believe a lot of things that I hear about the old times. And so that that sounds borderline made up to me. Yeah. But I imagine he's got like pre-prepared speeches and some science nerd can flip through them and count all the words and say, gosh, he did speak 63,000 words a day. What else did you have to do back then besides like wave at a boat and listen to speeches? So, I'm talking today with Matthew Wersner about William Jennings Bryan, the Scopes Monkey Trial, and the history of legal challenges to school curriculum. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We'll continue the conversation after this break. My parents were what you'd call wandering souls. I must have lived in a half dozen places before I was two years old. But eventually, my family wandered into this little sawmill town called Walden in northern Colorado. My mom says the town was really kind of hip back then. She'd put me and my brother in a little red wagon and pull us downtown. When we moved there in 74, there was a lot going on. There was... um, an art supply store, there was a health food store, there was a hardware store right on Main Street. I remember the uh, ice cream parlor and toy store. Yeah, and and your dad immediately started playing music with the rhythm wrestlers. The town welcomed us in, and for the first time, we settled down. But by the time I went to college, Walden was changing, fast. The town mayor, Jim Dustin, describes what happened. It used to have a sawmill. It used to have a uh, coal mine. It used to have a railroad. All those things went away. And even a recent fracking boom didn't revive things. And now my hometown has shrunk to nearly half as many people as when I was a kid. I wondered, just how small can a town shrink before it just disappears? From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is the Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and I've been doing this show for a little while now. Check out the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite app is. I'm talking with Matthew Worsner about the history of legal challenges to school curriculum and the implications they have for the future of education. Here's the rest of our conversation. But so he also uh, harnessed this sort of populist farmer, everyman energy, right? Exactly. He was, he was anti-banks and corporations yep. and all that. So he – and he does – he eventually does get to a position in the White House. He's secretary of state under Wilson. Um, but when the, the Zimmerman telegraph comes out, the communication from Germany to Mexico saying, hey, if you go to war against the United States, we'll help you out um, – Wilson like publicly denounces it. He tweets out, "Hey, I'm not happy about this." <laughs> and uh, for reasons I can't explain, Brian says, "I've had it. That's way too much of Wilson being involved in this war. I want out." And resigns. I, I don't think him Wilson publicly denouncing this is a big deal, but I guess 
Brian uh, did. Gold standards, denunciations. You know, who, who can say? I, yeah. I mean, this guy's a mystery, apparently. But so, so how does – so he, he sort of like uh, just becomes a public figure after that until Scopes yeah. Monkey? Yeah. He okay. continues to work in the, the Democratic Party to um, advance other people. But his political career um, is essentially over. But so we flash forward to um, the Scopes trial in – it's 1925 and this law gets passed that says you can't teach evolution in schools. And the ACLU is brand new and they say um, – will defend anyone who's charged with this crime. And that's the ACLU's thing, is they, they try to find laws that are unconstitutional and then will fund the legal challenges against it so that they can get the, the cases struck down or the, get the laws struck down. Um, the people of Dayton, Tennessee, think that this new law is a great opportunity for them to get some publicity. And so they scheme and they find a local teacher and they say, okay, buddy, you're going to be the victim here. And Scope says, sure, I'll do it. I don't know if I ever taught evolution, but yeah. I'll he was I'll, a science teacher? He was like a football coach and a science teacher. So was okay. he really a science teacher? <laughs> well, you tell me. I don't know. I, what do you like to do more? I, I mean, he's only known for this one thing, so yeah. there's not really a whole lot interesting out there about him. But he says, I don't remember teaching evolution. But so he gets um, – So it wasn't a passion for him. No. He was not indoctrinating kids with any intentionality or anything No. Like that. Okay. I, I imagine that he was real goofy and said, oh, shucks, guys. Sure, I'll do whatever you say, boss man. Um, Just don't take away my coaching job. Yeah, exactly. Um, so he um, goes to his students and says, all right, I, you guys are about to get called before a grand jury um, in a case where the maximum punishment is a $100 fine. I need you guys to say that I taught evolution, even though I don't remember doing it. <laughs> so he, he gets indicted, and um, the – the state of Tennessee does something really peculiar. They appoint a special prosecutor in the case for a case where the maximum punishment is a $100 fine. And that special prosecutor is William Jennings Bryan. Um, Bryan assembles a dream team of lawyers around him. So there's five lawyers that are going to charge this guy with this crime. Um, the local hype men in Dayton who want all this publicity – Naturally, as I know you're going to assume, write to H.G. Wells, the writer, and say, hey, buddy, will you come and defend Scopes in this trial? And Wells writes back and says, I'm not a lawyer. No, I won't do this. Did they pick him because in the time machine evolution ha – like, so you get the – the people who live above ground turn into these, like, you know, dainty humans, and then the people below ground turn into these, like, big ape-like creatures. And so I, they're like, he gets evolution. Look at the time machine. I was, I was thinking it was maybe half that and then half kind of like, you know, War of the Worlds is really scary. And they're thinking, oh, this is this is a guy who's going to be able to put on a great display for us. Oh, okay, yeah. And he, they're going to he's going to be able to make this a spectacle. Still kind of an odd choice. Absolutely, <laughs> one of the weirdest possible choices. But so, rightfully, Wells says, I don't want to do this. So their next choice is the Johnny Cochran of defense attorneys at the time, Clarence Darrow. And Clarence Darrow says, I don't want to do this. I'm too famous. If I come down to Tennessee, this is going to become a circus. And they're like, 
bro, have you seen what's going on already with this William Jennings Bryan guy? Like, circus <laughs> is going to happen whether or not you're there. So he says, okay, I'll do it. And he assembles his own five-person dream team. And they descend upon Dayton, Tennessee for this trial. Um, let me explain to you. I'm, you know I'm not a criminal lawyer. And I've told you and Frankie a number of times before <laughs> that unless you want the death penalty, please don't call me if you've been arrested for something. Um, I don't know a lot about how to prosecute a criminal case, but my assumption is for a $100 fine kind of case, the prosecutor is going to go, okay, will you plead guilty? And if the guy says yes, they'll walk into the courtroom and he'll plead and pay his fine and be done. And if the guy says no, the prosecutor is going to go, okay, I'll dismiss it. I don't want to deal with this. That's my assumption. Okay. But no, they put on this grand trial and in order to be found guilty of a crime, they have to prove that he taught evolution. Mm -hmm. They don't have to prove that evolution is real or fake, and they don't have to prove anything about the Bible. They literally have to prove, did he teach evolution? So naturally, that's not what anybody talks about at any point in the trial. <laughs> what do they talk about? So day one of the trial, um, they immediately frame this as, one side says this is a, an attack on religion, and the other side says um, religion is attacking science, and neither side will concede an inch that they're both being babies. Well, and so it's a, it's a situation, too, where the actual issue doesn't matter, and it's just a sensationalized uh, war, exactly. culture war. Exactly. So day one of the trial, Judge, I wrote his name down, Ralston, He's, he gets things off on the right foot by quoting Genesis. <laughs> and um, Clarence Darrow is, is – and they're, they're outside the presence of the jury. And Clarence Darrow is standing there in the courtroom. And there's a sign in, in one side of the courtroom that says, read your Bible. And this is in the courtroom. <laughs> and Clarence Darrow says, can we remove this, please? And uh, shockingly, um, the judge says, okay. But – Remember 40 seconds ago how I said the only thing they have to do is prove that he taught – the Scopes taught evolution? Yes. So from the transcript, the judge says the issue in this case – the issues in this case as, as they have been finally determined by this court is whether or not it is unlawful to teach that man descended from a lower order of animals. Wrong. That is not correct. In no way, shape, or form is the, the trial judge supposed to be doing that in this criminal case. But that's, that's what the circus was for. They all knew that's yep. what they were getting into. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And the judge buys into it too much for some strange reason. Uh, but so this, the case proceeds and the, the prosecution puts on its case and it's not that interesting. Then Brian doesn't really do anything that's particularly exciting it's not until the defense has their turn to put on their case in chief does anything interesting start happening. So Clarence Darrow brings out, gosh, how many? Five expert witnesses on evolution. And like I've said twice already, it's not about whether or not evolution is real. And the judge says, no, I, you know, I'm not going to let you have these guys testify about evolution, even though... The judge says that's what they're here for. 
the the judge smartly says this is irrelevant. I'm not going to have this. So right off the bat, um, Clarence Darrow is is on um, bad footing with the judge. And I looked into the judge a little bit, and there's not a ton that I could find about him, but he did start off every day in the courtroom with a prayer. Publicly. Yes. Not, not like to himself. No. Privately. Okay, yeah. And would acknowledge any time there was a clergyman uh, in the courtroom. So We can guess maybe where his biases might lie. Yeah, we, we can assume what's going on. So um, the defense initially takes the position that evolution and the Bible can coexist together, and they, they eventually change their mind and decide that demeaning any person who believes in the Bible is the way to go. And it, despite the fact that Clarence Darrow is the Johnny Cochran of his time, or Johnny Cochran is the Clarence Darrow of his time, um, that, that's the wrong way to do it. You don't insult your opponent. You break down their argument. But that, that's what Clarence Darrow chooses to do. Um, but so they, they lose all of their expert witnesses. Clarence Darrow does. And in a really peculiar move, Clarence Darrow says, okay, well, um, Mr. Bryan here contends that he's an expert on the Bible. So I want to interrogate him. Has anything like that ever happened in a big trial before? I am utterly, totally, and completely shocked that that happened. Because <laughs> there's, there's an ethical rule that specifically says that a lawyer can't act as a lawyer in a case where they're likely to be a witness. In the comments to that rule, I remember reading one specify that you can't call your opponent as a witness for the sole purpose of disqualifying them as a lawyer. Because that's that's nuts. But that's clearly what's happening that's, here. That's sort of what happens. Yeah. But to his defense, the judge says, okay, I'm going to allow this, but I'm not going to allow you to talk about anything confidential. And I don't want this as sworn testimony because this is not – this isn't really testimony. This is something that we're preserving in the record so that the Court of Appeals has something to look at. But this in no way, shape, or form is informing my – decision on whether or not Scopes did it. Okay. So um, in, in true circus fashion, this is the time where the judge decides we should have class outside. It was really hot um, in 1925, apparently. It's seven days worth of, of trial. And on the seventh day, the judge says, I'm worried about the structural integrity of the building, plus it's too hot in here. I probably shouldn't swear. Sorry, but I think Gordon that's that's that a hilarious swear to have in there, though. <laughs> the the judge says it's too hot in here. Um, we're going to have court outside today, kids. So on the courthouse steps, Clarence Darrow interrogates William Jennings Bryan <laughs> about the Bible. And what, kind of, like, what kind of questions do you ask in that situation? So he they start off, and I printed off the, a portion of the transcript from the testimony. They start off by by saying, okay, I want to call Brian to the stand. And Brian says, I'll do it, but uh, that guy, Darrow, he's going to have to testify as well. What <laughs> absolutely ridiculous response. But so Darrow uh, says, you don't need to, to swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. And Brian says, no, but I want to. And Darrow says, that's okay. So Brian says... I can say, so help me God, I will tell the truth. And Darrow says, no, that's okay. Thanks, buddy. 
They immediately proceed to argue about the story of Jonah and the whale. Argue about its plausibility or what so, about it? Clarence Darrow says um, the, the story is that Jonah is swallowed by a whale. And Brian says, nah, he's swallowed by a big fish. <laughs> and they, they get into this back and forth about whether or not the Bible is supposed to be taken literally. And I, it feels pretty literal to me to say it's not a whale, it's a big fish. Yeah. But um, they then argue about whether or not uh, Cain and Abel and where women came from, whether or not it's Adam's rib and whatnot. But um, there's one particular portion in here that I think was a little cheeky. So Brian is – and we're in the middle of the testimony. Um, Clarence Darrow says, do you think about things you ought not to think about? And Brian says, well, sometimes. I don't know what that means. <laughs> was that, that's trying to say like – have you committed a sin? Is that kind of where it's going? I, I'm wondering if he's if he's trying to say, do you, do you have any raunchy 1925 thoughts? Right, yeah. And in their very top hat 1925 way, that's that's Brian's way of saying, hmm, yeah, probably. And that's, So essentially, though, we're just we're completely lost in the weeds at this oh, point. Oh, yeah. And very shortly after the, the crowd stops hooting, one of the lawyers says, uh, Your Honor, we are attaining no evidence. This is not competent <laughs> evidence. Um, yeah, that's one of these things where it's like you're just having so much fun learning about it, hearing about it, that you're sort of like, all right, what were they there to do, though? And then, like, yeah, i got to yeah. remind myself sometimes, like, oh, yeah, this was about evolution right. being taught, not even evolution. Right. And the the crowd continues to applaud and go crazy over these things. And um, Brian says to Darrow – you call the people in the crowd yokels. And Darrow says to the crowd, oh, my God, did you hear him just call you yokels? And they, they get into this back and forth about who's actually insulting the crowd. And Darrow says to Brian, you insult every man of science and learning in the world because he does believe in your fool religion. And it, they're, they're getting out of hand. It's getting really bad. And right towards the end, um, Darrow, again, he, he's, he's not had enough. And he says, I'm exempting you on your fool ideas that no intelligent Christian on earth believes. And the judge says, OK, I, I've had enough of this. We'll see you guys tomorrow. <laughs> so they come back tomorrow and Brian is ready to go. He's going to he's going to put Darrow on the stand and is going to question him in the same exact way and he's got these questions all laid out and and Darrow shows up and goes, "I'm done. Oh, let's let's just send this to the jury. I don't want to do this anymore." And the judge says, oh, "Okay." So Brian doesn't actually get to question Darrow and he laments to the reporters later that he's not allowed to question him and he he has this list of questions that he gives to the newspapers that gets widely distributed. Because he's a smart guy. He knows it's all for the newspapers anyway. Mm-hmm. None of it really matters in the courtroom. And at the time, this is the O.J. Simpson case of 1925. There's reporters from all over the world. It's being telegraphed every which way. 
And, you know, I, I don't think Brian bought into the spectacle as much as Darrow did, but I think eventually he realizes that it, it, it is a little ridiculous. But in the, in the ultimate insult, um, Brian, who's this fantastic orator who gives these incredible speeches about the gold standard, um, has this incredible closing argument prepared, and the judge says, okay, Mr. Darrow, it's time for your closing argument. And he says, no, I'm good, thanks. And Tennessee law says if the defense doesn't make a closing, the prosecution can't make a closing. And so, you know... Was that, um, was that intentional? Just has to, to, 100% yeah, okay. has to have been intentional. <laughs> so, so Darrow closes up his briefcase and heads home, and Brian immediately dies. He, <laughs> well, not like in the courtroom. He did not keel over in the courtroom, but five days later, he dies. Um, but the, the judge did say, okay, the jury found you guilty, Scopes, so I'm sentencing you to a $100 fine. This, I love that. I love how anticlimactic that all is. A, and so this, the, the worst part about this is it goes up on appeal naturally, yeah. like um, was the whole plan the entire time. And because the judge assessed the fine and the jury didn't assess the fine, it violated Tennessee law. So the conviction gets thrown out and it gets remanded back to the trial court. But the Tennessee Supreme Court writes in its opinion directly to the state attorney general, this is ridiculous. Please stop this bizarre case. (laughs) So they they don't retry him. And that case... Um, doesn't go up to the big Supreme Court. And that law stays on the books in Tennessee until the, the late 60s. And um, there's a particular case in Alabama, I think, that the statute in question is a mirror image of the Scopes trial statute, the Butler Act. And that one gets struck down by the big Supreme Court because it has no purpose other than to advance religion. And to, to bring the, the whole thing full circle, that, that other case, this Epperson case, the court says you've got to have a purpose behind the statute other than just advancing religion. And there's other, other cases like that. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Matthew Worsner about legal challenges to school curriculum in the past and what that means for the future of education. How does this relate to critical race theory? Yeah, I mean, that's sort of like, <laughs> what do we learn from all this? Well, there's... There's other cases that, you know, state legislatures are trying to get around these requirements and they're not successful. And um, the writing is on the wall, in my opinion, that the courts have decided for a very long time since the early uh, 1900s that the schools are the ones in charge of what the curriculum is. And I was able to find a case in Arizona in 2017, it's a district court case, which means it's not technically the law. But in that particular case, the court struck down a statute that says the statute banned racial studies. Now, I don't know what exactly that is, but it's I'm sound, sure they know exactly what it is, I've, if I've learned exactly. anything. Yeah. And the court said that violates equal protection, and there's no legitimate non-racial purpose for that statute. I, I will bet money that if a critical race theory case goes up to the Supreme Court, even with the ideological makeup of the Supreme Court today, they will find the exact same thing, that a ban on critical race theory either violates the Fourth Amendment, 14th Amendment liberty right 
or violates equal protection because there's no non-racial basis for the law. Um, for a little bit of schooling that has nothing to do with the Scopes trial. You know, I had to at least sound mildly educated yeah. today. Yeah, I mean, well, so I, I guess, is there any chance we get anything as fun as the Scopes trial, though, today? I I guess I, that's just our entire media landscape is the Scopes trial today, right? You know, and, and Congress. It, it, so it, we went from 1925 to 19-whatever with OJ. I don't think it'll be in our lifetimes if that's the cycle. It's like a, a volcano erupting. Every every 100 years, <laughs> yeah. we get an OJ trial or a Scopes trial. We, we've got another 50 years to go, <laughs> unfortunately. And, and, you know, these these kinds of cases, they don't make for good law. They don't make for good trials because they're they're ridiculous and they – they degrade everything that the court is supposed to be about. And that's that's a real bummer. But, you know, with 2021 being as crazy as it is, I, nothing gets any weirder than a school board meeting anymore. So I don't think we need a courtroom when we've got Florida people at school board meetings. Well, that's probably a good note for us to end on. <laughs> Thanks for being here today. Thank you. Riverside Chats is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowicz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.